Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Well, strap in, guys. Today's episode is one that is full of energy. It's full of hope. We have such an animated, inspiring, motivating guest for you all today. Today, my guest is a gentleman named David Vobora. David is a former NFL linebacker who played for the St. Louis Rams and the Seattle Seahawks. But in reality, his NFL career was merely a primer for his true passion in life. His true passion in life, as he puts it, is helping people close the gap between who they think they are and who they're called to be, which led him to create a not-for-profit called the Adaptive Training Foundation. The Adaptive Training Foundation empowers individuals with physical impairments or traumatic impairments through fitness, through community, through support. Check out the stories on their website at adaptivetrainingfoundation.org. I promise you, you'll be motivated. You'll be inspired by what you see. And if you have the means, please donate to these athletes. Donate to what they're doing. I promise you, you'll be making a difference. David and I, we get into some weeds in this conversation, but I'll say this, they're the most beautiful weeds I've ever stepped foot in. David is the type of individual that can take a simple question and turn it into this beautiful, robust, deep answer, which I just love and clearly thrived off of in the conversation. David really brought out the best in me, I think. If I could have a conversation like this one once a week, I'd pay for it. I promise you that. David is completely upfront. He's an open book. He's honest about his journey, which includes some high highs, but it also includes some really low lows. He's inspiring. He's vulnerable. He's wise. David, brother, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your encouragement, both on the podcast and off. Thank you for giving me permission to believe in myself, to believe in this mission. I'm so grateful for the time we've spent together. Ladies and gentlemen, the powerful David Vobora. Hey guys, real quick, I just want to let you know that the Examined Athlete is supporting a very special charity called Baseball for Babies, and we want you to go check them out on their website at baseballforbabies.com and donate to their cause if you have the means. Baseball for Babies is a charitable organization that was formed to support and save preterm babies. 100% of their proceeds, that's rare, 100% of every dollar they raise goes towards supporting preterm babies, the parents of preterm babies, or research to prevent prematurity. And if you happen to be in the Houston area, they will be hosting their first ever gala on November 7th, 2021 to raise money for their cause. There'll be music, there'll be door prizes, there'll be donation opportunities, and also in attendance will be Houston Astros great and former examined athlete guest Lance Berkman, and they'll also have in attendance current Los Angeles Angels all-star Anthony Rendon. You can find out more again on their website at baseballforbabies.org. Together, we can bring more babies home. What's up, brother? David, what's going on? Thanks for joining me. Let's start with a little background. So 
you're from Eugene, is that correct? Eugene, Oregon, Hippieville, USA. Yes, sir. Well, I want to learn about that a little bit. So when I first heard that, I'm like, I know Eugene. It's, you know, Tracktown, USA, Nike. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, I don't know much about Eugene. What's it like to actually grow up there? Yeah, I mean, I mean to start with Tracktown, USA, for sure. You know, it's interesting the way that Nike and, and University of Oregon Athletics. So my dad was a linebacker for the Ducks. And I essentially was raised inside of Autzen Stadium, right? Like, just beyond passionate about Duck football. And that was... Was, that was what I was going to do, right? I was going to be a college football player and play for the Ducks. And as it came down to signing date, I ended up not getting the offer that they had previously discussed with me. And so as they all passed, I ended up with one Division One offer to go to the University of Idaho. And, you know, I wanted to play at the highest possible collegiate level. And so it was my opportunity to do so. But growing up in the Pacific Northwest, right, like it was socially very liberal. I grew up in a pretty conservative home, but I, I definitely felt like there was a good balance between being immersed in a culture that was a, a wild spectrum. <laughs> and when I say Hippieville USA, right? Like there'd be, you know, somebody topless walking down the street because there's no law to, to, to prevent that or a law to allow that, I should say. You know, and, and, we, and interesting things like assisted suicide, for example, it became passed when I was in middle school and having conversations about something like that. Like, I think, I think that I'm just really grateful for, an abundance of diverse experience growing up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, and it rained 300 days a year. So anytime somebody complains about rain, I'm like, Ooh, rain in Texas, man, I'll take it. Cause it makes me, it reminds me of home. Although it's a little bit more biblical down here. Well, there's some parallels right off the bat. So my dad was MVP of the college world series at Texas. I grew yeah. up in Austin, Hippieville in Texas. We That's had, right. we had our share of topless people walking around, <laughs> but I also grew up a Longhorn and grew up, that's where I wanted to play. We'd go to alumni games, probably very similar to you at Dishfalk Field. And then I end up at Rice. It didn't take me very long, though, to embrace being an owl and moving on from Texas. But I, I still look back at that time and realize that just like you, that's all I ever wanted to do yeah. is grow up and be like my dad, which I'm sure you did too. So you ended up at the University of Idaho. I spent a minute checking out Moscow, Idaho. It is like a, a speck on a map. There's nothing there. What was it like going to college in a town like that? Yeah, it was exactly that, a college town. You know, I think the town of Moscow is maybe 15 or 20,000 in full, as far as the people that are there that are living there. And then the school is another 10 to 12,000. And about six miles across a highway, that's the state line, is Washington State University. And Pullman is, is not dissimilar to Moscow in the sense that 20 or so thousand people live there, but then the school is 20,000. So when school is on between the University of Idaho and Washington State, it is, it, you know, the, the schools themselves, the students, they uh, supersede those living there by at least 2x, if not three. So uh, they definitely college town, the Palouse, as they call it, which are these beautiful rolling hills of farmland, they grow wheat. It's a really pretty area, sort of almost a high desert, so to speak. And you get the seasons being not far from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. But, you know, it was a, it was a, I, I consider a perfect size for me, you know, and I think about kind of my career and even landing in the NFL at a mid-market, right, in St. Louis, but not necessarily being in Miami on South Beach or in New York City playing for the Giants or something like that. Like, I'm very grateful that my maturation, both as an athlete and as a, as a human being, as an individual and as a student, that felt like a really good size fit. 
and it allowed me to get done what I had set out to accomplish. Well, speaking of uh, about getting things done, when I'm looking at your time in Idaho, and I know you somewhat celebrate being the last pick, Mr. Irrelevant now, Heck yeah! but you were a standout at Idaho. And I know Idaho is not the University of Alabama, but you're all conference multiple years. You're in the record books there at Idaho. I was wondering, as I was looking at that, did you, at, in real time, were you pissed off a bit? Kind of had a chip on your shoulder? Like, wait a second, guys, I can play this game. I should have been drafted earlier. earlier. Was there any of that? You know, I'll say this. I always had a big chip on my shoulder. I I'd certainly, the, the movies like Rudy growing up, like I, I just was like, yes, I got to embody this. Because I always felt like I was a, an achieving average, not an average achiever. What I mean is like I was moderately gifted with talent and innate ability. But I think that the achieving average realizes, okay, I don't have as much talent as perhaps the, the top dog, but through hard work, allies and alliances, I'm going to supersede that person. Cause it's say at some point, the mountain humbles all people. Right. And so, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it becoming the last pick in the NFL draft and, and this moniker of Mr. Irrelevant, I wouldn't say that it placed any bigger chip on my shoulder because I was always somebody that did, that really relished the underdog sort of persona. It was like, dude, I, I dare you to, you know, have a lesser expectation of me because I'm going to, I'm going to override that. Right. I'm going to make sure that I pleasantly surprise you. And so whether I was high school to college, college to pro, I just needed a foot in the door. And I, you know, it's funny, Clay, this is a great story. As I got to St. Louis last pick in the NFL draft, rookie camp happens. It was like right last day of rookie camp. And the community relations actually came to me and said, Hey, would you be willing to go to this uh, local elementary school to speak at the end of the day today, because all of our veterans aren't here and we really need somebody. And I'm pretty sure I was like number 19 on their list to go to. And, and eventually that I, I go to this school and it was easy. I just said, Hey, how many of you guys have ever been the last pick on the playground? Right. Hands are shooting up. And I'm like, well, I was the last pick on Sunday night a week ago. It's not going to stop me. It's not going to stop you either. So I think there's always a way to play the hand that you're dealt. And if you, if you're looking for something to hang your hat on egoically to push you that much further, and that's something outside of yourself, I think that can be limiting. I think that can only work until it doesn't. I think it has to come intrinsic. It has to be that deeper why, regardless of who's watching, that keeps you on true north, right? On the trajectory to achieve when all odds are against you. And although I was slated as a mid to late round pick, becoming that last pick was my destiny, and I've certainly tried to use it. Did you read Grit by Angela Duckworth? I have not read it, no. She was on a podcast recently, and she studied great athletes, the Michael Jordans of the world, the Tom Brady's, and she said one of the mental tricks they use, which is similar to what you're saying, is they always see themselves as the underdog. Even when they're long past the underdog, they use that as something to push themselves. Clearly, you had your own physical talents. Maybe you didn't have... JJ Watts talent, but you had sure. something, but you still kept that inside you. I, th I find it interesting that you use that same trick that she just spoke about on that podcast coming into the Rams, the St. Louis Rams. What do you think your probability of making the team was? Yeah, that's a great question. In hindsight, I don't know if I ever even spent enough. I didn't even know if I ever asked myself that question. It was, it's ironic. Actually, I just had a meeting right here on the whiteboard. As you can see, it says why versus what now? Like you can pause to be curious about why am I here? Why did I get this opportunity? Why has this traumatic event occurred? But really like that's frivolous. <laughs> the what now or the what next is the real question to ask. 
to be able to uh, move the needle so that you see the purpose be beyond the pain maybe, or behind the opportunity to realize that like, man, if not me, then who, right? Like that's enough. Bottom line is fate made its calling. And, and there I was, right? And, and, and Scott Linehan, who was the coach of the Rams at the time, is a, is a for, former Idaho Vandal. So I know there was some love there with him taking a chance on me. Uh, and he said to me, he said, hey, look, don't worry about this last pick title. Just realize that we're drafting you to play and we need you to, to contribute. So it was really just about coming in and learning. And I had amazing veterans around me, Orlando Pace, Torrey Holt. I mean, guys that I could just sponge information and, and, and experiences from through their eyes as far as like what it takes to last in the league. And I, I've always considered myself somebody that's a lifelong learner and curiosity being the, the key trait to success uh, and the willingness to fail and fail fast to, so that I can fail as many times to eventually find that, that greater success. So, you know, the Rams and the opportunity there, it was eye-opening in the sense that I realized how much of a business it was. They were cutting guys one time on a 45 minute flight home from our last preseason game. Mm. What a way, what a way to go. Oh, I mean, guys are like, I mean, I'd be honest. I, I probably faked like I was asleep too. Like, please don't walk down the road and, you know, cut me in this moment. But, and but then I, you had I, to go back and sit down after they cut you and have the rest of the flight. Goodness. Brutal, a little self-awareness would have been helpful from front office there, but okay. yeah, that's a low character move. That said though, that reminded or taught me like, well, this is a business. And I need to realize that although the relationships with the brothers to my right and left are the most important part, uh, this can end at any moment. And, you know, you'd think that that would have prepared me for a better transition exiting the league. But unfortunately, it was certainly an identity crisis for me. Well, we'll get there for sure. And I certainly wouldn't suggest to anyone that in the moment you should be thinking about a probability of failure. You should be thinking about why I'm going to succeed. I was more from a hindsight perspective to point out that the likelihood. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said this, I had Jeff Tarpinian on who played with the Patriots and played with the Texans. And I said this to him as I've seen enough HBO hard knocks to know that people like yourself get cut. So I'm curious, yep. what do you think separated you? You said physically, maybe you weren't the the biggest and baddest in the world. What allowed the last pick in the NFL draft to not only make yeah. the team, but become a starter? What do you think separated you? Yeah, I think grit back to the, the gal that you just cited. Uh, there was a part of me, you know, I had a high, low ankle sprain in our second preseason game and I ended up missing most of the third preseason. I think almost all the third preseason. And then ultimately game four of the preseason back then when they had the fourth. I mean, I did, gosh, uh, more on the medical side than I probably should say uh, in this recording, but toward all shots and, and oral uh, anesthetics and then uh, creams and other things. And ultimately the coaches knew I was playing on an ankle that was half speed, but that showed them the resolve, the grit. I never came out of the game, played the entire thing, all the special teams. So I think part of it was grit attitude mindset, which is a value proposition for this team. And then more in a strategic or tactical sense, my ability to know all three linebacker spots and to have the ability as a utility player to play in different down and distances and other special packages. So I think the versatility as an athlete and the know-how, right? The ball, the ball smarts, ball savvy were the two things, right? So grit and then the, uh, the intellectual side of being able to show up well as a spot player were the two things that really allowed me to be successful. That's interesting you bring up that lesson for young, young athletes because that's exactly what Jeff said, is that he had the mental side of the game. He knew the playbook inside and out. Yep. He could play any position. I think he said the Patriots 
uh, you know, Belichick at the time said that's the NFL is we can throw you in any of those positions and we know you're not going to screw up, you yeah. know, and he may not have been Brandon Spikes, yep. but he could play his position and he could play three other positions and he could also play special teams. And he took pride in that, which is interesting. One of the things that stuck out to me is you had five tough seasons, win loss. I think you had a one, one win season, a two win season. <laughs> what was the mood like on those locker rooms and what are the biggest lessons you took away from being part of teams that are busting their ass, but yeah. not necessarily seeing the, the end product on the field? Clay, these are great questions. I just want to compliment you on your homework and facilitating an awesome interview because we're just getting started. <laughs> listen, buddy, losing brings out the worst in people's character right? Especially when the stakes are this high. And, and I'll, 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 I'll say this too. You know, I won nine total games in four years of college. Winning nine games in one season at Ohio State's a bad year, okay? Like, it, University of Idaho, like, and I had an opportunity to transfer, actually, Dennis Erickson, famed Miami coach and NFL coach, and he, he came back and was my coach my junior year. And then he went, had the opportunity to go and coach at Arizona State, I had the opportunity to transfer and I took a hard look at it because I wanted to play at the highest level. I would have had to sit out a season, but two things happened. First, I knew I had a commitment to the men in my locker room, right? Like as a captain, multi-year captain, I was like, Hey, the win-loss column isn't, that's what we're after, but that's not it, right? Like the relationships that I've formed, the willingness to go to battle uh, and trust my guys is everything. So I had a commitment to my people. But then second, I looked at this like grass is greener concept. And although I'll, I'll mention, I feel like I had the ability to make tackles when others on my team didn't that helped my statistics uh, at Idaho. I think that I just felt clarity on, hey, if they're going to find me, meaning the NFL, they're going to find me. Wherever I suit up is, is a bit irrelevant to that. And I think today's day and age, you see that, right? People coming from lesser conferences or, or, or realms of football to be able to be identified as top talent and developed. So... I think the, 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 the true north for me was always like, okay, if there's an opportunity to see myself as an NFL player, what does that look like? And if I, if I embody that consistently, maybe there's a chance that I can believe that I'm as good, good enough to play. And I remember I was trying to quit football my sophomore year. I went into Nick Holt's office, Nick Holt, former defensive coordinator under Pete Carroll, won all the championships at USC. And I said, coach, I'm done. I'm out. This isn't fun for me anymore. I'll never forget it. He turned a picture of Lofa Tatupu around who ended up becoming one of my Seattle Seahawks teammates down the road. And at this time, Lofa's at the peak of his career, all pro. And he, and he turns around and he says, there's no difference in you and this guy. I'm like 195 pounds, right? Like soaking wet, like true freshman or sophomore year, whatever it was. I kind of laughed. And he said, you know, the only difference is you don't see yourself as this caliber of player, but I do. And I, like, I kind of had to pause and go, man, is he just trying to keep me from quitting or does he actually believe that? And I chose that day to believe it. I chose to believe it. And it's interesting when you acknowledge and you agree to something like that with somebody that sees a level of you that maybe you didn't see for yourself. And in that moment, it gave me this like, okay, regardless of win-loss column, my why, the reason I show up can't change. And I can't tell you, Clay, how many Thursday practices or Friday walkthroughs that I flipped a table or threw a helmet because my teammates were screwing off and it didn't matter to them. And I'd be in tears after every loss, no matter what, because it effing mattered. The same thing came, carried over to the league. 
even though it was business, even though there was lots of turnover and lots of attrition, it was like, dude, at the end of the day, it's not about how many tackles I had or whether my name's in the column the next day. It's about whether or not we won or lost. And so I saw through leadership, through the lens of leadership, those that amidst all chaos or all odds led well. And they were oftentimes the coaches that had larger tenure. And I'd say this because the young coaches, they tried to do too much. It's the idea that like, dude, the the ship is sinking. We got to patch this holes and patch that thing rather than trusting the process. Pete Carroll was a coach for me that I always was in awe at how freaking simple he kept it. Let your dogs eat. Keep the game simple, right? One or two checks within, you know, any, any set or setting rather than having it so complicated and compounded that you end up robbing people of just playing fast. But I watched in human nature, these people that lost the joy for the game because the win-loss column. And I dared never to do so. I said, you know what? I'm always going to realize that I, it's a blessing to play this game. And I have such an opportunity to do so. I don't know when that's going to expire. So I'll be damned if I show up with some level of negativity, just because we're not going to make the playoffs this year. Yeah, you wanted to put your value in something other than the end result, which I think is important. I want to linger on that coach for a minute. I didn't plan to go here. I call that giving someone the permission to believe is what he did. And I think it's underplayed in leadership. And that's because he may not even remember that moment with you. I think a lot about these insignificant moments to the influential voice Mm-hmm. that for the person listening, it's completely life-changing. It changes the trajectory of your life. And so I've talked to a few leaders on this podcast, and I point that out, is take the time to make that comment. It may feel like nothing to you, but yeah. it gave David the permission to believe in himself and completely changed the direction you were headed, which I think is so in- important for leaders to remember. I think it's a great lesson for leaders Yep. I don't want to fast forward your career, but your mountain is much taller than your NFL career. So let's just maybe explain how your career ended because it was yeah. Yeah, uh, pretty abrupt. You know, one thing I just want to touch on that previous point is, so my father has been a timer at Hayward Field, Tracktown USA, right? Where now the Olympic trials are and all this stuff. He's been a timer because just in case for some reason, the electronic timing fails, they have to have timers there on site. He's done it for 30 plus years. And when I was a young boy, eight, nine, 10 years old, I was the kid who uh, about 20 meters into the hundred, there's a, a wind device that gauges the wind progression. And if it's aiding them too much, the world records can't stand so on and so forth. So I would wait until they ran by, I'd get that number. I'd run it down at the finish line and go, it was 0.86 or you know, whatever the threshold was. But what that allowed me to do as a young boy was I was next to Carl Lewis, Jackie Joyner, Kersey, right? Like these people that, and I'll never forget this clay. The only person to ever stiff me for an autograph is Carl Lewis. Now, I'm not here to bash Carl, and I wish him the best. That said, to the point of what you just mentioned about the leader, right, the affirmation or the edification as a leader to deal hope, to see something and affirm something in somebody that maybe others haven't or couldn't see. And from your perspective, that making all the difference. Well, I'd say the opposition to that is what Carl did, right? And again, maybe it was a bad day for him maybe whatever the race, however, I see it differently today, especially on the heels of being a pro football player. But what I committed to myself that day was no matter what time it was, how close to game time, how inconvenient it was, I was going to stop if somebody asked me for my autograph and I was going to engage with them as a person, 
not as somebody after something, not as some transaction or whatever, but like transformational. Hey, look them in their eyes, treat them like a whole person, connect with them, make sure that they realize that they're worth it, right? And that you appreciate them. And I think that's something that uh, I've carried over in my life that has really led to the most meaningful work of my life, which is post-football. And I know we're going there. And, and that's this idea that like in society today, I think too often we see people and categorize them in a way that cheapens their humanity. And whether that's persuaded with agendas of the media or other political values or otherwise, we just, we, we've cheapened humanity where we say this at, at my gym that I, again, have started to train people with disabilities for free, this not-for-profit. And it's all hinged on the fact that if you treat somebody broken, that's how they'll act. You look them in their eyes and treat them like a whole person, that person shows up and will continue to show up. And that's where I think you empower people to become their own leader through their own experiences that changes their beliefs, that shapes their behaviors and changes the results of the collective, right? It moves the needles for many. And so I think my, on the heels of my football career, two things happened. First, I couldn't turn it off. Like I'd get home from practice and I had to have an Epsom salt bath and the game film and I'd be listening to binaural beats or whatever was good for me and this. And it was like, to the nth degree, all of the things that are positive to help you and your craft, they ate me alive. And really the fear of not knowing who I was without football, right? As injuries started to show up, as David had to ask the question of like, Oh, what, what could be next? Cause you know, again, being Mr. Relevant, otherwise it was tunnel vision for success. Not to say I didn't care about people during that time. I just had an easy way to prioritize what mattered based around what I did, but my over identification with what I did as who I was, that is the trap. That was the, the hole to which swallowed me up. And it really was just about not feeling, not allowing that doubt to show up. And the easiest way was to use opiates, Xanax, pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Well, right? before with- we get there, let's set it up by telling everyone how your career ended, which led to that. And then we'll definitely get into that. Yeah. So I, you know, I was in my, uh, actually, I, this is a cool God thing too, man. The game I got injured playing in my last snap in the NFL, I was covering a punt and the guy from the Western Redskins pushed me in the back at full speed. And I ended up landing on my elbow driving my shoulder socket back it in. And basically I heard all of this just explode capsule labrum, rotator cuff, microfracture, Mumford procedure. So my grade three AC popped this, this clavicle was sticking out. And in doing that game was the exact game for me to be able to get my NFL pension. So again, thank you. Uh, and the eyes of, of again, most, well, the average player's career is three years and three games. I was able to play four years and four games, but that, you know, in the idea of the 15 years of football that prepared me for that, it was, it was exactly what I described as the identity crisis. It was like, dude, you reached the pinnacle in your craft. And, you know, unless I go into coaching or scouting, where am I going to teach cover two, right? Like getting a job in the real world or going and doing whatever, like those skills don't apply, but that was such a cop out. The, real, the reality of it was like the attributes that made David great on the field or great as a person were the exact same attributes to be leveraged or applied outside of football to help others that couldn't see their own potential. But there's and, a journey to get there for sure, I imagine, <sighs> which we'll go through. And I was curious because one of my great friends in life had a great NFL career. And I was at the game in Houston where his knee was ripped to shreds in a similar story to yours. 
But for him, he went through two, three years of really busting his ass trying to make it back and going through tryouts and hearing, hey, we make, may make it here, we may make it here, and then having setbacks physically. Did you know it was over pretty quickly or did you go through a period of, of what he went through? Yeah. So similar. Yes. As it would happen, I got injured about four to five months of just increasing abuse of drug use and substance abuse. Uh, Ultimately I I landed in a drug detox and it was six, seven days uh, of the most brutal experience of my life coming off of these drugs. And damn it, man, it was the best possible bottom for me. It was this thing that allowed me to see like, whoa, wait a second. Football is just a small part of who David is. It's an opportunity to play a game that I love, but it's not the, the meaning of David. It's not the real purpose or worth of David. I, didn't, I couldn't articulate what that could be, but at the time I had taken a year off from football because I had to have a couple of different surgeries. Uh, obviously being clean and sober was a big deal for me. So spending about 18 months going through 12 step, going through a, a number of, of sobriety focused programs. And then it was interesting when the saints called because my old coach was there down playing. Uh, he was coaching defensive coordinator for the saints and he called me. And when I saw the number pop up on my cell phone, my natural reaction without thinking was, Oh, I hope that's not coach in the saints. Cause for some reason, the opportunity, it was like, that's no longer the part of David that I have to feed. And it was clear to me in that moment. And after I hung up that call, that it was time for me to retire. And so I called my agent and told him, yeah, man, I'm, I think this is it. And at that point it was like, dude, I'm done. And I, it was hard for me to watch football at that time because I was just like, I could look and see somebody on the field and like, I could smoke that guy right now. I could go out there and smoke that guy. But it was the right discernment to know that, okay, the tides are shifting in my life. Where am I going to go and invest these skills in a way that isn't locked to the gridiron? Well, let me back you up a little bit. You know that this wasn't the peak. I think you say this is your primer. What your NFL career wasn't your peak. However, as you articulated, in real time, it was very difficult and you were dealing with some emotions that were difficult. One of the ones that stuck out to me is a quote. You said something to the fact of, you were worried your greatest achievement had already occurred. And I struggle with worries about the future to this day, worries about prestige, worries about accomplishment, peaking professionally, as you said, they can really warp a sense of where you are. So walk me through that feeling of sitting there going, I'm 25, 26 years old, and I've peaked professionally, because it's something I worried about felt. And I'd like to get a perspective on what you were feeling in real time. Yeah, it was, it was a God complex. There's nothing quite like running down the field in front of 80 or a hundred thousand people. When you make that play, that sack and you come off the edge and the ball spits out and the eruption of the crowd and the, when you feel it, as I describe it, it, there's no drug on earth that can replicate what I just described period. Now I'm pretty sure stepping outside the wire when you're jocked up, right. Serving our military and ready to hook and jab with bad guys. is probably the only thing with more adrenaline. And so it was, I'd say this clay, it was less about me thinking about like, Oh, I've peaked career wise or vocation wise. It was more like, what am I going to do? That's going to give me any level of excitement or enthusiasm or adrenaline kick like this. 
you know, and if I hadn't been in a relationship and, and plans to get married and have kids and have family, I'll be real with you. I would have gone into the SEAL teams or I would have gone into the Marines. I would have done anything I could to sign a waiver to say, I don't care what my body's, you know, banged up from football. I, I, I'm hell bent on doing this. What like I'm, I'm hearing is where is a mountain that rivals that peak I just, I just climbed. And I like hard things. I like we, hard things. We talk about that all the time amongst my friends and on this platform is for athletes, effort's not the problem. I know you can get up at 5 a.m. and work out. I know if you're chasing business, you can put your resume out there. You can do what you need to do. But there's space between that, that effort, and finding that mountain. And when you can't find that mountain, oftentimes that effort doesn't feel like progress. And I found that that's been my biggest problem is, hey, I can give you all the effort in the world. I can be resilient, if you will. But if I can't find that mountain, it kind of sends you into a tailspin. Yeah, it's the idea that like, give me the formula because X and Y equals Z in football, right? You work hard in this, you study the game in this, you're ready to go in the role that you need to play for this, you have success. Suddenly now you're like forced into this sort of real life business, civilian sector, outside of sport. And otherwise you're like, dude, X and Y equals W and this doesn't make sense. Or it's not even X and Y to start with. And so you feel like you're swallowed up. And I think that's where it takes those who have, both successfully transitioned or unsuccessfully, right? Dealt with some big time issues that have now course corrected and discovered for themselves. Oh, wait, this is the thing that gave me the new ridgeline. Let's use military service members, right? They can be home geographically, right? They're here in this country, but they're not all the way home until they have a tribe community or the people they connect with. And I, I would say even I'd stretch that to say not just veteran exclusivity, but integrated with civilians, and integrated in a way that is a true picture of American society today. Um, but then also a ridgeline, a new purpose, an opportunity to help somebody enduring a similar suffering. You can't take their pain, right? We're not that powerful. In fact, pain is so relative. You know, what could be a 10 out of 10 for me, Clay, could be a two out of 10 for you. But life doesn't discriminate. It provides the freaking curriculum. People all the time are like, what do I need to do to, to develop grit in my life? And do and yeah, I can go, hey, sign up for this 100-mile race or do this thing. Like, But you know what the truth is? Is like life is going to provide to them the resistance and the difficulty. They have to just be willing to re- recognize that what they seek is inside of them. My whole focus, Dave Vibora's why today is helping people close the gap between who they think they are and who they're called to be. Who they're called to be, in my eyes, is somebody who realizes that the things that were supposed to, to limit them, to keep them from to be the the diminishing factor. Those are actually their uniqueness that if put into the light, those scars are the greatest purpose and greatest opportunity to help somebody alleviate a similar type of suffering because it's all in our mind. What's your advice to close that gap? I I would say my daily focus is closing the gap between who I am and who I'm supposed to be. What's your advice to people to close that gap? Yeah, love yourself the way that 10-year-old Clay should be loved. How often do we get into this head trash, this little insidious voice in our head that's not paying rent that says you'll never, you can't, you won't, or you're a fraud, you're inauthentic, right? Nobody will ever. That that negative language, the ability to change our focus and attention derives our emotions and our feelings. If our emotions and our feelings are the things that are pointing our trajectory, then we're going to be like a balloon in a hurricane. So I think the, the root of this is getting back to, okay, where I am today, what do I have access to? What is in my control? Maybe it's just a conscious breath 
right? It could be that just that. And everything seems spiraling out of control, but it, it's counterintuitive to think sometimes doing less or going within is going to be the greatest path to a bigger outpouring in the future. And man, I, I'm not here to sound cliche and that sounds really hippy dippy, right? But as we started to develop tools for showing up as a conscious and present human being, we realized that the physical nature of that walk or that movement is, is, is kind of the latter portion. We usually lead with it. The real true north is this ability to intrinsically identify with your value, your worth, and your motivation, then extrinsically apply it. Where we often get stuck is like, hey, extrinsically, what does the world say matters? Where do I find my place in it? And what is my role for, for doing so? But then every single day, you have to suit up and show up in a way that's almost like it cheapens you as a human being. I had a coach that I worked with for more than two years, and he used to say all the time, DV, we're human beings, not human doers. And I, one thing that should be noted is that what I said about my why is closing the gap between who people think they are and who they can be, not become. Become is this inherent destination to you've arrived. Oh, congratulations, right? Enlightenment is yours. Or you've suddenly acquired the thing that we all want, and so you must have this this golden script for what happiness looks like. Nah, man, anybody listen to this right now, do this exercise and I, I guarantee you you'll find more worth in it than anything, any of the juxtaposition I just described. Write down the three most horrific, tragic and difficult things in your life. Then write down the three most triumphant, joyous and you know, successful things in your life. Show me why those six things are interconnected. And you won't, even, you won't even have to. You'll be like, holy crap, if this bad thing, bad thing, right? Because that's definition based around our very limited perspective through a pinhole rather than thinking about, you know, the full panoramic. That ineffective or bad thing is suddenly the reason why all of these things in my life make so much sense or why I feel the joy of them. We just get into this pain pleasure cycle where we try to refrain from going through the things that are sharpening us or distilling us to be to be, to be, not become, but to be. And your worth, it's like a freaking nail and mortar. It is fixed, man. There's nothing you can do or not do to change that. Then that's freedom from and freedom for. So I said this on a podcast yesterday, the freaking prison door is unlocked, man. Just push on it. So many of these mental emotional patterns are because we bought into somebody, somebody else's beliefs about us or roles for us. We can free ourselves from them if we have the, you know, the aperture for exploration and curiosity. You know, that, that's where I think you see people take back a governance over how they were labeled. And with the population that we're working with now, that's a really critical thing. Well, one of the things I try to remind people when I'm having a conversation like this and when we have a personality like yourself who's giving advice, it's easy to hear David Vobora speak and say, well, David's so evolved. He's past it. He's on the other side of this journey. And what I try to remind people of is there's no such thing as being past it. There's no such thing as being evolved past this. We're all on this continuous journey. And I may put my value in the right place today or this hour, but I may screw it up tomorrow or at 3 p.m. today. I may put my value in on the internal now, 
But tomorrow I may worry about what someone thinks about what I said on this podcast or worry sure. about some post. And so I always try to remind people when we're having these, you mentioned the word hippy dippy or these kind of elevated conversations that I think they're so important. Take something from it, but remind yourself that even those that seemed quote unquote evolved are still on a journey and they always will be, always will be. You got to give yourself some grace. That's why I went back to like, how would you coach 10 year old you? You know, like, does the slave driver mentality work? It may, it may have worked to get you here, but it won't work to get you there. So as paradoxical as it may be, the truth really kind of lies less in force and more in power. Power is sourced through vulnerability to the point that I will gladly claim I don't have it figured out. I wish I did. I, I can point to little fortune cookies that I've experienced that I think are kind of X's on a roadmap to like, yeah, I think I'm on the course. But the reality of it is, is like, dude, I get to, right? Not got to, but I get to realize that my greatest joys can come from the learning when I have a day that I really put this into practice in a poor sense. You know, when I was super reactive with my kids or my wife or my employees, when I tried to bulldoze somebody because my ego felt like I needed to be seen as this powerful leader rather than understanding that courage is action in the face of fear. And oftentimes through vulnerability is where I see real positivity bred. Like that's, that's a principle that I just, I hate when I realize after the fact, crap, I didn't have to come into this with this like over alpha energy or like this, this need to be right. This need to like be some level of a martyr for this cause when in reality, less is more. And like, that's just part of this paradox of like learning and growing and realizing that like your best attributes can work against you if they're used to the nth degree. Let's talk about drug addiction a little bit. You've been very honest about your drug addiction. You've you've mentioned it already. As someone who has zero experience with drug addiction, how do you describe an opioid addiction? What does it do to a person? It's an entity that takes you over completely. It feels as if it sunk its teeth in you to which... All of your best and most meaningful priorities suddenly are second to feeding the beast. And the beast is this thing that uses, again, your best attributes against you. You are blind to the fact that, man, you can rationalize any way. It's the gambler's mind, right? Like, if I'm down three, I'm going to come back four. You know, and there's this, like, perpetual, like, I'm going to find the thing I'm searching for on the other end of this, if I can just try one more time, it's insanity. It's the definition of insanity. And damn it, man, anybody that's listening to this, that's dealing with anything of the such, man, I just know that you are loved, know that there's, there is a path out. It first takes your honesty, rigorous honesty, whether that's through 12 step, somebody you trust or a inpatient or outpatient type of treatment program, I mean, my buddy, Scott Strode, Scott started the Phoenix and it's really, it's sobriety through the lens of exercise, right? It's replacing a a destructive habit with a constructive one and through community, right? Putting certain things in place to be able to have a whole new lease on life. I mean, the, the addiction piece is interesting, Clay, because it doesn't stop with substances. It's like, 
I was trying to manage my for-profit gym. I was meeting all these warriors, these guys that had gotten blown up, lost limbs, spinal cord injuries, all these people with disabilities. And I was training 20 or 30 of them for free because I felt like they deserved it. And I was watching them just find this new hope and this new zeal for life. And it was clear to me that I couldn't manage both. I was sleeping on the gym floor and on yoga mats some days for a couple hours before I'd start my new clients. And, and it was crazy because it was the clients like the Starbucks. And they were paying me well, but that wasn't really it. I just didn't want to let them down. You know, I was like, these are people that matter to me, but my passion was clearly on working with these individuals with disabilities. And so I came home one night, it was 2 a.m. And my wife was at the kitchen table, one light on. And as I describe it, it's like interrogation room stuff. And I sat down and she said simply and clearly, do I have to be missing an arm or a leg for you to put the same type of focus and attention on, on me and your family? And it was just, oh, it gutted me, not in the sense that she was trying to throw a jab, but just in the sense that like, I needed to hear that because I was blinded just like I was in football, right? To, she said it in a way you could understand too. Perfectly. And that was something I was like, man, I, I'm not perfect, but I promise I'll be better. And I have been every day that's passed. And, and, and in times that we can have that little like, you know, come to Jesus moment, I've realized, man, okay, that ick it could be the around substances. It could be around workaholic. It could be around whatever you fill in that blank. Those are the areas where I need great people around me to hold me accountable when I'm blinded to the parts of David that just wants to charge. And you spoke to those that may be dealing with addiction and that would be success for me. If someone hears this and realizes that even the physical and mental outliers in this world, which I'd call you a physical and mental outlier, their path zigzag like hell and yours turned around and went the complete opposite direction. But yet here's the path. And if you're there, keep moving. And it doesn't always even matter how you're moving or what direction, just keep moving. And your addiction, I know led to a loss of will to live. And I think your wife, you just mentioned her literally talked you off a ledge. And I think that being vulnerable like that, I think sharing your story and, coming from someone from influence is so powerful because that's where people learn. They're not going to learn much from your draft or your tackle at the goal line (laughs) against the Cowboys. That's not where learning takes place. Learning takes place right here. Learning takes place with vulnerability and sharing these stories and sharing setbacks, if you will, is my opinion. And I'm going to fast forward a bit. I I don't know. I'm mindful of your time, but I've got a lot I want to get to. So you you start this typical gym. I'm calling it a typical gym training NFL athletes, training healthy people. One of the things I'm very interested in is how one identifies the right path for them and how one comes to realize that the path they're on is not the right path for you. Because I think that's incredibly difficult, especially when, like yourself, you said it was successful. You're doing well. Well, success often leads to comfort and comfort often leads to complacency. So my question is, how did you know that typical gym was not the right path? And why do you think it didn't fill you up in the way you wanted to be filled up? Fantastic question, man. I'm loving this. Yeah. The, uh, you know, so I meet this guy, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills. He's one of five living quadruple amputees. He was blown up, serving our great country in Afghanistan. He was 82nd Airborne. 
And I made him at a Navy SEAL buddy's uh, birthday party. And I walked up to him and challenged him to work out. He made some jokes, right? Not having arms and legs about working out. And I, I didn't back down. And ultimately, the moment where I realized typical gym wasn't for me or that there was a new way to present, quote, typical gym, but through access and inclusion was when Travis suddenly was doing 100-pound sled pulls on these short prosthetic legs. And I, I both watched, witnessed, and heard everybody in the gym that could no longer claim what they claimed when they entered. My pinky toe was sore. Oh, I got cut off in traffic on the way here. Oh, my kids are just not listening. <laughs> what? This guy without arms and legs is doing this thing. And everyone went, excuses were lost, elevated in every sense. And I, I witnessed this psychosocial thing happen. And I'm like, dude, this is what the world needs. And again, like, I love my church, beautiful church here, an amazing community. But like, <laughs> The greatest cross-section, I think, of America today could be the gym. The greatest place of healing could be this opportunity through sweat psychology to, again, it's agnostic of gender, race, sexual preference, veteran, civilian, socioeconomic status, whatever, like all of that. Like, wow, what if exercise, because a little bit of shared suffering, right, galvanizes unity. And, and through that, there's a level of respect that I think overrides certain political views or prior experiences or whatever. And I've seen it. I mean, we had a, a woman here above the amputee who was on Hillary's campaign, who was in a class with eight combat wounded veterans who got blown up serving in a very Republican sense. And they were very Trump oriented. And, and I was able to gather them around and say, hey, respect is all I care about. And so although we have difference in opinions and beliefs, how do we grow? And I watched that group celebrate her and love her and still do care and, and vice versa. So I think that that's the recipe for acknowledging that life done well is about shared experience that again, changes beliefs with the hopes that then our behaviors can become more responsible, more conscious. And then the results of those things on a micro scale can change and move the needle on the, the macro. That's just, I think people today are, there's no quick fix. The pendulum swings 30 degrees this way, it's going to swing 30 degrees that way. There, there's a law, there's a physical property in that or principle in that. So we need to realize when to make a point, we're trying to persuade it this way. That's a dangerous because, because the law of those physics are that it's going to come back. And that's where I think I see in today's America that it's like the volatility manifests and we're so hyper-focused on the changing of the tides that we, we do so at an extreme, therefore, leaving us behind the eight ball for that much longer of a period of time for it to return. I want to talk more about what you just did, but I feel like to be fair to the audience, we need to give them an idea of what ADT is. So you start training military veterans, oftentimes disabled veterans, quadriplegics, people who have lost Definitely. limbs. Was there any science, any precedent research for you to, to help you formulate this plan? Yeah, well, as I researched, there was nothing out there. I mean, there was clinical stuff, physical therapy, but it was all very sterile. And so I kind of just went blue ocean. I was like, okay, if I'm one of these people that has been kind of ostracized and victimized, hey, here's your pills, here's your disability, go sit on the couch, right? How, how would I want people to talk to me? And so it, back to Eugene, Oregon and Tracktown USA, Bill Bowerman, 
Bill Bowerman at Nike said that if you have a human body, you're an athlete, whether you compete at sport or not. So the first thing that I did was like, we're going to call them all athletes. And a lot of those people, whether they were a former athlete and kind of like grieved the process of saying goodbye to that, or somebody that was never identified as an athlete that suddenly was like told they were, they're like, Ooh, well, I kind of like that. You know, I never thought I was before, but now here I am. So I think that was a really, I don't know how calculated it was in my head, but it was just this empowering thing that I'm like, that's how we're going to lead. And then with it, it was like, how do we demand them or convince them that what they think is inside of them, that it's not some external force. And I think this, this is a principle that applies for, for how you get the best out of people, regardless of that's corporation or organization or not-for-profit church, whatever. And I think the idea is kind of go into that Simon Sinek, start with the why, right? This, this concept that, you know, I've been on a team. A team is a roster. It's an organizational chart, roles and responsibilities, right? I play linebacker. Here's my job. That's different than a tribe. A tribe realizes that the perceivably maybe youngest, least experienced, most impaired, fill in the blank, that person is an integral part to the success of the whole tribe. So the why for the Adapted Training Foundation can be, hey, come as you are, but don't expect to stay that way. And then the micro whys of every individual in there may be walking unassisted, right? Holding your daughter's hand as you walk her to school. It may be doing this thing for the first time, doing that thing. But that idea that they have an arena so that they can, they can come and test their metal on a daily basis, like that's the recipe of an ecosystem or a laboratory where like I want to be okay with the fact that I can be vulnerable and fail fast and fail forward knowing that these people have my back. Go ahead. To get into the logistics of it, I know you have a 90-10 model, which is to say 90% is actually spent on the mental side. 10% is spent on the physical side. So describe a bit about what your staff looks like. This is not just a bunch of trainers. We're talking uh-huh. therapists. We're talking physios. We're talking yep. meditation experts. We're talking maybe, I don't know, medical professionals. Yep. And what I thought when I read all this, David, I, I've heard of holistic medicine. I thought of the term holistic fitness. We're training yep. mind, body, soul. Yeah, it's, I say sneak therapy because, you know, physical may be the market entry. They think they're coming here to walk again or to, you know, lose body fat and so on. And, and time and discipline will allow for those things, right? I can't tell you when, but the how, as long as we do that, it'll take care of itself. But the other stuff, the elevation of the whole person, to your point, is the 90. So as they come in here, pre and post every exercise session. So our flagship nine-week redefined program is built up of comprised, individualized, and customized programs of training in the physical. Pre and post every session, they do a mindfulness, breath work. They use that as an anchor to get grounded, to then slow down kind of the incessant train of thoughts in their heads, identify what their their visuals and their anchors are so that that way when things get difficult in exercise, they can enlist those. So that way, when things get difficult outside of our walls, wife, kids, this thing, that thing, otherwise, they can enact those same tools. So this is, again, this is the ecosystem to test it. So that way it's in a safe environment so that outside these walls, they can apply it and, and, and habituate it. So the idea that this is a psychosocial program and the mission is to equip them with a better opportunity to navigate their life and have opportunities more as a contributor than a consumer. That all goes back to them seeing their perceived disadvantage as their advantage. And 
damn it if it takes too much tragedy or catastrophe for us to make 180 in our life. You know, it shouldn't take the drunk driver in the car crash or the tree falling or the ski accident or a bomb going off to suddenly be like, wait a second, I'm called to, to be a different version of me. And I'm no longer on this unconscious autopilot where I'm this reactive person. I'm now, I now have a choice. And, you know, using breath, using exercise, using spiritual re-identification, we can realize that we don't have to understand why any of this occurred to know that there's something that is producing a deeper truth. And the exportation of that is where my healing lies. I really believe this. You only keep it if you give it away. I'm not going to sing Red Hot Chili Peppers right now, Clay, because my voice is not apt. Go for it. You can't have all the talents, Clay. You can only have so many. Um, but, but that's like, I, and I know you guys feel my passion. Like it's, it's this equation to which we are putting out certain things, breadcrumbs, and they don't speak the same language as us. So they need to viscerally experience and discover for them the things that we saw in them that they couldn't see. And eventually they start to believe them and start to realize that that bag has a, a lot more depth to it than they realize it. And, and now all of a sudden they're this, this human being that's firing on all cylinders and they have something to offer. You do for them what that coaching college did for you. And what I want to do now is here's some things that jumped off the page as I'm researching what you're doing. And if I misinterpreted any of this, please jump in and say so, but then you can elaborate on these points. The first thing that I love about your program, David, is there are no victims in your gym. No one is showing up and getting pity. The standards are not going to be lowered. Even if you show up with no arms and no legs, guess what, bud, we're going to push you. And there is so much research showing that like you mentioned earlier, when you treat someone like a victim, when you treat someone like they're less than or reduce the standards, you're actually doing a disservice for that human being. People need to be challenged to grow. And I see this as maybe a pillar of what you're doing there. Is that right? That's exactly right on. To elaborate on that, I read a lot about this. I do a lot of research as humans don't mind hard work. They don't mind being pushed. In fact, they thrive on it. They really do. And oftentimes... When you remove that hard work, I think other unhealthy replacements like <laughs> drug addiction mm-hmm. take, the, uh, take the forefront and things like that. Another thing that jumps off me is you keep mentioning community, which I'm big on. You mentioned tribe. I had a, a U.S. Army veteran named Jordan Inger on the podcast a few weeks ago who was critically injured by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. almost lost his life. And one of the stories he told ended with, I'd give up a million dollars a year in salary to be back on a tank with my brothers and sisters getting shot at. And what he was alluding to was this bond that you're talking about, this community that is built on a battlefield, which is unrivaled anywhere on earth. And there's this, what I was thinking when you were talking earlier is there's an evolutionary connection to that struggle and to that environment. I think it's lost when these veterans return home. So what I think is so great about what you're doing is you're recreating recreating that community that they've lost and that is needed. And the workout, you said it is a byproduct of feeling a part of something, of achieving goals again, of being pushed again. Am I correct there? Sing it to me, man. Keep going. (laughs) Very good. Well, talk a little bit about 
helping others. Trainees seem to quickly become trainers and how important this is to what you do. Yeah. So the shortest distance between two people is a story. And there's more overlap than there is difference in the synonymous human experience. Perhaps, you know, life handed it to you at a different time or in a different way, but the identity of how you show up and against all odds, uh, when all things seem to hit you in the face is to me, the mark of, of somebody. Now it's also the mark that, and I, I've been this story too. There's certain things in my life where I didn't feel like I acted courageously or with the valor that perhaps I felt I could have. And those are nothing but mere learning lessons that should galvanize a, a unique next step. You know, if, if anybody's listening to this and they're struggling with community or a depth of relationship, maybe they're in a, a marriage or a, a, a intimate relationship that is like, it's just waning. And Jocko Willick says this really well, but like, go do something hard together. Go sign up for, I'm getting ready for, well, I'm going to run Leadville 100 uh, next year. I don't, I'm not sure if any NFL player ever has been a little research on that, but this is basically a race plan, not just the, the training plan separate, but these are all 50 to hundred mile races that I'm going to do leading up to. The reason I mention that is, it's like, if you want to really go deep and understand somebody, you got to suffer together. You got to be willing to try hard things together. So the reality of, of kind of today's trophy for trying culture is that we rob ourselves of the difficult things that if endured together, we can have a, a different level of connection of, of, dare I say, patriotism to realize that, dude, that flag has never represented a perfect America, but it's something that's still where, where freedom and freedom of choice is paramount and you're not going to find it anywhere else in the world. So, you know, the, the greater lesson for me has been, okay, wait a second, even doing this work at the Adaptive Training Foundation I can be a little bit locked into certain principles in my life that maybe I'm, although I'm aware of them, I'm not necessarily feeding them. I'll give you an example. You know, we see things every single day that will bring a lot of people to tears and they should. We have the danger of being coming callous to celebrating these mini triumphs on the greater journey to redefinition for our athletes. And I've struggled with this often because sometimes you get a little bit frustrated or irritated when you lead the horse to water and they don't drink it because you know they're capable. And this kind of leads me back to addiction and 12 step, which is it takes what it takes. And some people in certain timing and certain paradigms in their life, they're just not willing to, to receive or they're not capable of even receiving at that level. But the deeper question to that is, does that mean that you stop sowing the seed? And maybe you sow a hundred seeds and one every couple of years is actually the thing that takes. And in fact, you may never even know or be able to quantify how many took. Do you do it anyway? Do you interpret sowing the seed as helping others? I interpret sowing the seed as, yeah, a willingness to help to aid, to reach, to give that hand up, not the handout, but this idea that like what I've endured and found healing from gives me freedom for an opportunity to serve. And that's what you just mentioned in these athletes that graduate our program and come back as adaptive trainers, not just in the brick and mortar, but now we're crafting, we're creating this hybrid online model, sort of a masterclass version 
of what we do to scale and reach the over 40 million Americans with a physical disability. Not even going into global numbers on that, but you can imagine the need, right? So I think the root of it, though, is how do I make sure that although there's going to be some people that want to, they just aren't ready for And am I okay with the fact that the statistics, the quantifiable data may seem like we're failing, but is it enough that that one person didn't take their life or now has an opportunity to redefine their relationships or has a new vocation or whatever? We rob ourselves of joy through comparison and statistics all the time. And also we we pat ourselves on the back and overly inflate a view, a view of success is through that pinhole rather than the full panoramic. So I guess what I'm saying, guys, it's never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. Everything is impermanent. We have to decide to show up in the present moment and do what we can with what we have because we're called to. There's no other way around it. If you're living a life in service of that, and in fact, you're doing it in a very messy way, I can promise I like you and you're somebody that I would hang out with. It's those people that pretend that have it all together that I'm like, I don't want to stand anywhere near you or be in proximity to you because your ego, you're blinded to the reality of of where you can serve. Well, and to your original point is when you're at your lowest, sometimes the best first step is to help someone else. Don't focus on helping yourself, helping someone else, which is what your trainers are doing there. Why no mirrors in the gym? Because when I read that, (laughs) I, I originally thought like, well, maybe it would be helpful to face it head on, see it and overcome it and know that that's not what I look like is not where my value is placed. But then there's a different side to that. So explain to me that that theory. So from the public perception and the external face stuff, it's like, you're not here to look at yourself, you're here to work on yourself. Sort of the aesthetic, oftentimes left to our own internal voice it can be something of a negative, negative factor. It's the idea that when you walk around your house, you see like, oh, I need to patch that little thing up and this is dirty. And that you walk around somebody else and you're like, oh my gosh, I love what you did here with napkin holder and this. And it's like, although they see all the flaws and all the things that need course correction. So first thing is that principle. But and yes, we do have a mirror on wheels that we'll use for feedback. And I had a young girl, actually a teenager, who uh, has cerebral palsy and her big thing was she couldn't look at herself in the mirror. And so during exercise, I forced her to, and we had some jokes about it and we made some fun. We, we, it was a, it wasn't this like traumatizing thing for her. One of my interns at our last cohort that came through here, she made them all little personalized mirrors and wrote power phrases around them. So when they did look at themselves, there's that ability to re-identify. You know, I, I spoke at my old college year or two ago uh, to open the year at convocation. And I challenged them. If you can't stare at yourself in the mirror without breaking eye contact for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes and see what comes up. Do you really know who you are? And there's just kind of like <gasps> kids and parents. Cause I think that like, that's an exercise. Anybody here listening, I challenge you to do so. See what comes up. You might shock yourself. You might not be able to look for more than 10 seconds. You may have emotions that come up that are really heavy and hard. And if you can allow them to be there and allow them to pass and release them, you're going to walk away empowered from that exercise, even more so maybe than if you went and trained at the gym. And so I think the the mirror thing is really about, now, at the beginning of our class, when they come in, they have to draw themselves. They get a piece of paper and a pencil, five minutes, draw yourself whatever interpretation that is. And then after the nine week training, they do it again. They don't get to see their previous picture. 
we've done some campaigning around this. It's been brilliant fundraising because it's really the ethos of our program, which is, again, shifting them from extrinsic to intrinsic. Guys that drew themselves with a knife in their head or this angry thing or this downtrodden thing that was standing or triumphant or they, they drew themselves first as a reflection in the mirror and then they drew themselves as just the way they see themselves now and that self-actualization that came in was all the brilliance of the program. And yeah, the fact they can bench 100 pounds more matters, but it doesn't. So I think that everything that we do here is very intentional. The mirrors coming down from public perception was a certain thing, but the pragmatic ways that we have make them have to face themselves in the proverbial mirror. That's the thing that I think really lands the plane with what we're trying to achieve. A couple of more things and then I'll let you get out of here. You've been really generous with your time. I'm, this is a beautiful conversation. Positive energy. One of the quotes I really, I wrote down here, focus on providing better energy and positivity of the world. And I've learned some of it through personal experience that wallowing neurosis creates negative energy and negative energy repels people. It repels opportunity, but you're dealing with some people where I think those emotions are common, the wallowing, the rumination, and they probably have a lot of right to wallow. How do you teach your athletes to cultivate this positive energy you're talking about at maybe their lowest point? Yeah, so there's a spectrum based around emotional states and the frequency they resonate at. If anybody's listening, Google it. It's fascinating, right? Where apathy is very low on the ladder, right? And ultimately, enlightenment's at the highest. But like peace, love, joy, happiness, curiosity, self-discovery, like all these. But there's a mute point, kind of right around anger and pride, where you see this almost like quantum leap, where they, they come out of this like very apathetic, very like numb state and they get into this emotional register that, that 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 feels charged it feels energetic and it's not necessarily positive in the sense that like you would say to that person that they're having a a value add or a systemic effect of positivity around those around the people near them that said though uh i'll use an example so uh triple amputee in the airport at dfw i don't know this dude roll up to this guy kind of abrasive i guess or just kind of direct and i said hey man how much can you bench with that arm? He gave me this look like, what? Like no one is even, you know, maybe somebody's walked up and said, thanks for your service. Maybe somebody's come up and said, dare I ask what's your story? What happened? Right. Which is rare. Nobody's treated this person as a person. They've just kind of like bounced their eyes, grabbed their kid and said, don't stare. You know? And I'm like, yo, how much you bench with that arm? He's like, nobody's ever asked me that. I'm like, yeah, you didn't answer the question. He's like, I don't know, probably, I don't know, 120 or so. I'm like, that's pretty good. Do you actually use a gate belt when you do it? Because I got to imagine because you don't have the counterbalance. He's like, are you a trainer or something? Like, yeah, actually, I train people like you for blah, blah, blah. Like, where do you live, man? Oh, I live in San Antonio. Cool. How long did you serve? What, what was your MOS? And pretty soon we're talking and it's like, and fast forward. So that dude, I'm actually staring at a picture of him right now up in our conference room. This dude was, he, he escaped from a cult true story in the middle of nowhere, Canada in the wilderness with his brother, brother went Marines. He went army. This kid first deployment gets blown up, becomes a triple amputee at 19 goes through two years of chaos in San Antonio at Bamsey and, and getting all these medical procedures and he's suicidal and all this stuff. It took me coming up to him at the airport, him saying, yeah, I live in San Antonio and me saying, well, why don't you come up to Dallas for nine weeks and train with us? He did then moved here. Now he's engaged. It's an amazing job. He's doing really well. I'm really proud of him. 
is a huge asset to people in a similar sense of, of their own perils. So I know for a fact that the emotional state that people are in, if you can do something to disrupt it, I mean, I've had guys on the phone with me saying they were going to kill themselves. I'm like, hey, cool, Domino's, I just ordered it. It's going to be there in 20 minutes. Like, hey, when you smell the pizza, don't, don't eat it. Don't, eat, don't you eat without me because it was going to take me an hour to get there. I needed something to disrupt and distract them in that sense. So I think the, the idea that if we can become aware that we're aware of some of those limiting factors, those self-defeating principles in our lives, the use of words like always, never, those are absolutes, those are black and white, can't, won't, shouldn't, couldn't. This idea that like, I'm sorry, holy crap, holy crap. You want to talk about that word? I hear athletes all the time like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, why? Why? They're like, well, I, I was just being polite. I'm like, were you? Or I'm going to say you're being self-flagellating. I'm going to say that you're self-deprecating a bit because all you have to say is, hey, thanks for your patience. I'm sorry I'm a minute late. Getting out of the car was a little bit of a bear getting in my wheelchair today, but thank you. Thank you, and I'm sorry. Just that. Think about the ground that you stand upon to which you don't give away some level of your power. The idea that, and one of my great mentors, Clint Bruce, Navy SEAL, where I started the gym in his warehouse, the reason I met Travis Mills is I was at his surprise birthday party. And I remember where I was when I was praying, like, God, just make it really clear if you want me to open this gym. Careful what you pray for, right? When you seek discernment and you're honest and earnest about it, it may just show up and you got to be willing to, to, to ride that train. And Clint was one that just basically was like, hey, dude, walk crawl, roll, crutch into a room and let other people adjust. Not as a here I am person, but as a, hey, there you are type of person. What wisdom in that, right? Because people are going to stare. We made a shirt here at the foundation that says pressure is a privilege. The brain seeks symmetry. It scans a room every four seconds. If you're missing a leg or you're in a wheelchair or whatever, people are going to note. They're going to notice it. What are you going to do with that? And when I see somebody that's in this angry state, I say, good. That's actually better than apathy because it's closer on that, that spectrum of certain frequencies that I can quickly gain you to pride, even if it's an egoic pride and a pride that you're going to find a lot of resonance to point fingers. It's still a feeling state that is up the, up the ladder so that I can eventually get you to see with curiosity, not judgment. Oh, man. I see what I'm doing here. I can choose better. If you're reaching for the bourbon every night, the bourbon's an issue, but like there's a reason for the reach. Maybe a couple of reasons behind that. If we can flesh that out, now all of a sudden there's a sustainable way to keep you on a new path. I'm watching you and listening to you. I just think you're built for this, man. I mean, the, the ability to go up and create an awkward situation. I always say awkward is a state of mind. I may not feel awkward, but you were built for it. And yeah. I want to leave you with this one thought that I added yesterday. I'm reading this book called Radical Hope. And the book explores the psychology behind losing culture and losing society. The author does this by studying the Crow Nation and when they were moved onto the mm -hmm. reservation. This move to the reservation didn't just upend their society. It stripped away the manner in which they proved their value and proved their worth. And I was reading about this on Sunday and I just had to mention it to you. It seems analogous to what you're doing with veterans. For an example, if courage is determined by courageous acts, yet you're no longer in an environment where that is possible. How do you be courageous? 
And it seems to me, and maybe you can use that, that's what you're doing is you're creating this environment that used to exist for these athletes and doesn't exist anymore. An environment where courageous and selfless acts take place every minute of the day. And I just, I had to leave you with that note. Last question. If someone's struggling to find their true North, what do you, what do you say to that person? And that's me some days. No, it's that. I mean, look, it's, it's still me. Y'all don't put me on some pedestal as if I'm this, this uh, pastor of the mega church or something true North. Well, let me start by just saying, if you're head down, eyes closed, hands closed, you can't catch whatever's right in front of you. If you feel lost, if you feel on autopilot on some level of numb, which I think a lot of people do, I think the greatest thing to do is in your current habits or behaviors, right? Travel to work, the gas station, the this, the grocery store. If there's the opportunity to connect with somebody, make it your duty or your, your conscious effort to do so. And I'm just going to finish with a story. It's a story I've shared on podcasts and otherwise, but I got to brag around a really amazing Marine buddy of mine. This dude, he's just a force and he's a force for hope on the heels of what you just mentioned with, with hope. I think hope is a priceless currency. Y'all. I think that hope is like water without it. We die. And we can look to discover it in different places. But once we realize that we can elicit and deal it, we can start to be somebody that is equipping others with a similar hope. That's when you become, you know, your supreme being. And so myself and this Marine are walking into a 7-Eleven. It's late at night and, and pretty certain we weren't going to buy chocolate milk. Uh, we were probably buying some things that probably weren't good for us. That to say, homeless guy runs up and, and I kind of dismiss him. I pass him first and my buddy ends up stopping. And as I look back through the glass of the, the convenience store, I realize, yeah, man, my boy got caught. So I need to go check on him. So I double back and I, I witnessed this exchange. My friend's looking at this homeless man. The homeless man's got his head down. They're not really looking at my buddy in his eye. And my friend pulls out a $5 bill, goes to hand it to the man. The man grabs it, but still won't look my friend in his eyes. And so my friend holds onto the bill real tight. And as the guy turns to walk away, he realizes the bill's not coming with him. So he's forced to double back and then look up. He looks my buddy in his eyes. My friend real casually looks at him and says, you're worth it. Kind of puzzled the guy does that little sort of head nod thing, but then nods his head as if to say thank you, walks toward me and into the to 7-Eleven. But then he turns back and he walks over to my friend and he looks at him and he says, what did you say to me? Real casually, my buddy reaches down and lifts up his pants leg, reveals his prosthetic foot foot that he lost serving our great country in Iraq. And, and he looks up at the guy and he says, what I did for this country, I did for you. You're worth it. You're worth that money. My jaw's on the ground. The guy turns not into the store anymore, but walks down the sidewalk around the corner out of, out of sight. And what I witnessed was, was hope being dealt. It had nothing to do with the amount of money. It had everything to do with looking somebody in their eyes, treating them as a whole person right? Seeing their worth beyond circumstance to say, hey man, you matter. Really? I don't know where that man is. We don't know the outcome of that. My buddy didn't do it because he thought he was going to save this guy this day or do something profound. He just did it because he could. And then since that day, I've tried to be in service of that same principle. If you can, you should. Or if you can, will you? 
And the greatest way to get out of your own suffering, the own incessant voice in your head that says it's not enough, you deserve, you need to be seen as this way. If you can just tap into the state that says, hey, I'm of service. And there's air in my lungs for some purpose to just deal a little bit of hope today. It doesn't take writing a huge check. It just takes that connection, especially with masks and otherwise today. Like, Do your best to find that. I think that's the path that will show them a new trajectory for where you're supposed to spend your days. And absolutely love it, man. Absolutely love it. And what I love about it is not that he just probably changed that man's life. He changed your life with that action. No small thing, man. Didn't even know it. I, I love it, man. I've been shaking my head. Yes. This entire interview you're doing great things. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being a part of what we're trying to do. Love it. Keep up the great work, my man. And next time in Dallas, we need to sweat together. Yeah, Clay, love to host you at the gym, buddy. Um, again, huge compliments to you and the gift that you are and have for this work. Keep going, brother. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks.